Well, we're going to look at the book of Revelation very briefly. There has been more Tommy Rock <laughs> written and said about this book than about any other book of the Bible. Most of the books on the book of Revelation found in Christian bookshops are not worth the paper they are written on. They are dreamy productions based on newspapers and they are forever changing in their interpretation. The main cause of misunderstanding the book of Revelation is it has ignored the very first words of the book. The very first words of the book are the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the key always lies at the door in the Bible. When Genesis begins within the beginning, it's telling us that this is a book of beginnings. The beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, the beginning of redemption, the beginning of the human race, the beginning of the chosen race, and so on. See? The key was at the door in the beginning. It's a book of beginnings. And the key is at the door in this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a book about him. Isn't it about the future? Yes, but it sees the future through the lens of the cross of Christ. And it's the failure to see that simple truth that has led to a waste of time and money and uh, so many heartaches for people who've calculated dates and all sorts of things. The New Testament wasn't given so we could calculate dates. When Christ talked about the second advent, he said, that day and hour knoweth no man. He warns us off the ground of trying to wake dates. You do not know the time when he will come, says Scripture. We're to know when it is near by the signs that are abound but we're never to try and set dates. And the book of Revelation has been horribly abused when people try to wrestle with its numbers and come up with dates like 538 and 1798 or 1840 or any of these things. None of them are correct. Not one. Not one. There has never been a date in the Christian era calculated by Christians that was really biblical. Never. Never been one. Yeah. There's several reasons for that. God doesn't want us to fix a date so many years ahead. We might think we can get ready the last few months. I might die that day. It's good to be aware of our mortality and live each day as though it was the last. John Bunyan said, if a person would live well, let him fetch his last day to him and make that his company keeper. That's good advice. The book of Revelation is God's amen to the demands of the blood of Christ. It is marked throughout with all the characteristics of that great event. That's why you read often in this book about darkness, reminding us of the three hours of darkness of the cross. That's why you read often in this book about earthquake, because there was an earthquake at the time of the death of Christ. The book is characterized by light shining out of darkness from the first chapter to the end. In chapter 1, he sees seven golden candlesticks and a radiant being, luminous, lighting up the night. Shining as though he's in a furnace, full of light, that picture of Christ in chapter 1. When the people of Christ are pictured in chapter 12, it's a woman that's clothed with light, moon and stars, glorious. When you come towards the picture of the end of things, as an angel comes down from heaven, the whole earth is lightened with, its, with his glory. The symbols that are found in Genesis of light and darkness reappear in the Bible's last book as it sets forth the implications of the struggle between righteousness and evil, between Christ and the devil, between faith and unbelief. And because the death of Christ was the ushering in, the confirmation of the new covenant, this book is full of covenant allusions. It's the book of the rainbow. When you get to the picture of God in, Genesis 4, in Revelation 4 and 5, the rainbow is prominent. 
The rainbow was a sign of the covenant. Now remember, a rainbow is so structured, the arrow, instead of coming down to hit us on earth, goes into the heart of God. That's the significance of the rainbow. The arrow has been discharged into the heart of God so that we can have forgiveness and peace and rest. And a rainbow is a fusion of sunshine and shower. And God is trying to tell us all along the way that life is forever changing. It's never the same for long. And there'll be times when we can't see his face and the shadows seem overwhelming. There'll be times when death seems preferable to life. That's not an uncommon experience for Christians. But because of the rainbow, we are to know the air has been discharged away from us and despite the rain and the storms, there'll be glory. There's hope. The rainbow is the sign that God has made promises. It's linked in Genesis 9 with the promise. Yes, there'll be storms, but there'll be never anything that's going to wipe you out. You mean Christians don't die? Of course we die, but death is abolished legally. It's just asleep. Just asleep. You wake up in the morning. So death is abolished. And the rainbow tells us that despite the showers, despite the storms, despite the earthquakes, the arrow has been discharged into the heart of God to pay the penalty for sin and those who believe can have glory and resurrection life. So this book has much to say about the covenant of which the rainbow was the symbol from Genesis 9 onwards. And to understand this book, you have to understand the Old Testament and particularly what it says about the covenant. There were woes and blessings in the Old Covenant that typify the woes and blessings in the New Covenant. The woes are usually set forth as uh, warfare and famine and pestilence and so on. And in this book, you find these things writing forth in chapter 6. You find the horse with the red sword and you find the black horse with the, the balances weighing out food and scarcity of famine. Then you find the livid horse of pestilence. These emblems of war and famine and pestilence were the woes of the covenant. They were associated with hunger and nakedness and many of the things that our Lord endured on the cross. Where he had the heat of God's wrath, where he thirsted, cried out, I thirst. He had the weariness of having been up and been abused for 24 hours. The nakedness as though he was the poorest man on earth. The woes of the covenant all fell upon him. There he drank the cup of the wrath of God for us. The blessings of the covenant are also set out in the Old Testament and you find in this book of Revelation the woes and the blessings continually recur and are a key to the book. And the very commencement of the book with its stress on light shining out of darkness is reminding us that before our Lord comes the gospel light must go to the end of the earth. For the first time in history that is now possible. For the very first time in history. Today, because of uh, media, television, radio and the, and the printing press, because of aeroplanes and means of swift travel, for the first time on earth, it is now possible, though it has not yet happened, that everybody on earth can hear the gospel. Why have they not heard it? Because a lot of religious people don't know the gospel. A lot of what's preached is not gospel. Anything that encourages bigotry and hatred and reluctance to investigate the word, anything that forgets the preeminence of love and the preeminence of Christ and the preeminence of grace, that's not the gospel. You know, the gospel is not complicated. God so loved that he gave that whosoever believeth shouldn't perish 
and have everlasting life. You've got all the great themes there of the gospel, and it's so simple. A child can understand it, but our human nature gets in the way. So when Revelation begins with the theme of light, the candlesticks, and it makes that theme recur and recur right through the book, it's reminding us of our duty to shed the light of the gospel so that all the darkness may be dissipated, our Lord may return. This is the book of the Lamb. It's a culmination of the whole Bible's presentation of the Lamb. In Genesis 4, you had the lamb typified when a lamb was slain so that the guilty sinners could be covered. In Genesis 22, the lamb was prophesied when Abraham said, God himself shall provide the lamb. Isaiah 53, the lamb was personified. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. and As a lamb before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. In John 1.29, the lamb's identified. Behold the lamb of God. And he's pointing at Jesus. And then when you come into Revelation, the Lamb is is magnified. All honour and power and glory and strength is given to the Lamb. And finally he's glorified when the Lamb is the light of the city and they have no temple therein, for the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple. A city without a church. Because God is the church. The Lamb is the church. So it's the book of the Lamb. The Lamb of God is given 25 titles in this book. That's just one of them. He's the root and offspring of David. He's the bright and morning star. He's the first and the last. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. 25 different titles. He is referred to 137 times in the first three chapters alone. Jesus. Isn't it amazing that people could miss the message and struggle into the Middle East and uh, water up to horses' bridles over in the river Euphrates and then Turkey and Russia coming down from the north? You know, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, 137 times in the early chapters. Even when it points out Antichrist, it bases its picture of Antichrist on the experience of Christ. And when it wants wants to talk about the church of Christ, it bases that on the experience of Christ. Look with me at Revelation 11, if you would. You know, the Gospels present Christ coming in the flesh And the epistles talk about his coming in the spirit, but revelations where body and head are united, the church and its head are married, and flesh is transformed, and we inherit a spiritual body. But before that, there's conflict, and that conflict set out in chapter 11. If you notice in chapter 11, it tells us in verse 2 that the, the courtyard of the temple will be trampled that the holy city will be trampled down for 42 months and God's two witnesses will prophesy for 1260 days. They're the two olive trees. They're the lampstands. That's an allusion to chapter 1 where Christ was represented among the lampstands. It tells about these witnesses in verse 6, they have power to shut heaven that no rain may fall. They can turn waters to blood. They can smite the earth with every plague. And then it says in verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends from the bottomless pit will make war upon them, conquer them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which allegorically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And for three days and a half, men from peoples and tribes and tongues and nations gaze at their dead bodies, refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets have been a torment 
to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three days and a half, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those that saw them. They heard a loud voice, Come up hither! And the sight of their enemies, they were up to heaven in the cloud. The same hour there was a great earthquake. Tenth part of the city fell. And then the last part of the chapter says, The temple of the covenant is opened. It's seen. And there's thunder, and there's earthquake, and heavy hail. So here's a picture of the holy city being trodden underfoot for three and a half years, 1260 days, and then the holy city is declared to be the two witnesses. The two witnesses are said to be lampstands. They're said to be prophets. Dear friends, the holy city in the New Testament is a symbol of the church of God. Again and again, that symbolism is used throughout the New Testament, that we are the bride of Christ, we are the city of God, we are the temple of God. That, that is found throughout scripture. So the holy city here is a symbol of the church, and it's called two witnesses because the number two is the symbol that's used in scripture for confirmation. We've got two testaments. Christ is the faithful and true witness. He's the second member of the Trinity. Number two stands for witness, confirmation. So the two witnesses represent the witnessing church. They're lampstands. You are the light of the world, said Jesus. They have the spirit of prophecy, which means the prophetic Holy Spirit speaking through the scriptures. They have that. And so the symbolism of Elijah, who could call down plagues, and the symbolism of Moses, who could part the waters, it is said that these people of the book, because they are proclaiming the words of the Spirit, they have all the heritage of the prophets behind them. And if God wills by their prayers, they can bring down these things. And then when they finish their testimony, 1260 days, because that's how long Christ testified. That's three and a half years. That's how long Jesus, the head of the church, testified. And after he'd witnessed as the light of the world for 1260 days, they put him to death. And he was out of sight for about three days. Then he was resurrected. And an earthquake marked the time he laid down his life, and an earthquake marked the hour when he took it up. So now the church repeats, the body of Christ repeats the history of its head. And that's a clue to the book. In this book, the experience of the church is set forth in the figures that remind us the church must go through the experience of its blessed Lord. Weren't we born of the Spirit like him? Weren't we called to be witnesses like him? Isn't suffering inevitable for those that would stand for God in a world that's in the lap of the evil one? Oh yes. The body must have the same experience as the head, otherwise you get in the neck. So here the church is said to be suffering for 1260 days and then it's put to death. That's what happened to Christ. Then it's buried. That's what happened to Christ. It uses three and a half, which is also a figure associated with Daniel's 70 weeks linked with the Messiah. And then it says their enemies are reconciled. You remember something in the Gospels? That Pilate and who became reconciled? Herod. See? It's using the language of the Gospels in Passion Week. Here it says their enemies became reconciled when they got rid of the tormenting messengers of God. So Pilate and Herod were reconciled when Jesus went to the cross. And then things change and there's resurrection and there's glory. And it says the temple was opened because when Christ died on the cross, what happened? The veil was opened, it was rent, and people could see into the temple where the ark was originally. See, So this very language at the close that the temple being opened is to remind us of the rent veil at the death of Christ. So the experience of the church is modelled on the experience of our Lord and the experience of the false church likewise. I want you to look with me at the most horrible chapter in the Bible which is also a glorious chapter when it's understood.
Look with me at chapter 16. This is a chapter which, like the rest of the book, I am still studying. I've been studying the book of Revelation for 50 years. I certainly don't claim to understand all the miracles and wonders that are there. But here's a chapter that keeps on challenging me. In chapter 16, why do we say it's the most horrible chapter? Well, look at some of the things in this chapter. In verse 2, a foul and evil saw. In verse 3, the waters of the sea become blood. Every living thing dies as in the sea. Then the waters, verse 4, of the fountains become blood. And then in verse 8, the sun scorches men with fire, fierce heat. And the men curse God. And then chapter 5, terrible darkness. And men again curse and gnaw their tongues in anguish. And then in the twelfth verse, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the river Euphrates, and the waters had dried up, the kings of the east might come. And I saw three unclean spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And they gave forth the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them together in battle against Almighty God. And they gathered them to a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And then a voice is heard, verse 15, Lo, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake, keeping his garments. He may not go naked and be seen exposed. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Great voice came out of the temple. It is done. It is finished. Flashes of lightning and noises and peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as had never been seen. And then at the end of verse 19, it says a great Babylon drains the cup of the fury of his wrath and every island fled away and mountains were not to be found. Now, I want you to think on the symbols. First of all, a foul saw. If you use your concordance, compare the Greek and the Hebrew, it means a leprous saw. Here are people who are henceforth viewed by the universe as lepers. Why? Because they've rejected the most precious thing the universe has to offer, the love of God. This is a chapter about the fate of those who reject the gospel. It was written with tears and probably can only be properly preached with tears. But this is the fate of those who reject the gospel. And they are first of all pictured as having the foul sores of a leper. These are people who are to be excluded from the holy city. You remember the lepers weren't allowed in. They were outside. That's why Christ died outside the city. They didn't rear a gallows inside Jerusalem. He died outside where the lepers were, where the garbage was deposited. So here now are those that have rejected the gospel and they're lepers. And after mentioning that, it talks about blood. And it repeats it, second and third, blood. And then terrible heat. And then darkness. And then the demons, foul spirits. Demons attack them. And then there's the last battle where the demons are making war. And then finally the words, it's finished. And there's a great earthquake and Babylon has drunk the cup of God's wrath. Now, dear friends, all this is modelled on Calvary. Our Lord was treated as a leper, so he's outside the city. His hands and feet yield drops of blood. A stream of blood pours from his side. There are blood drops coming down from the crown of thorns. Here's the blood and he experiences the heat of the wrath of God that so terribly calls out in shrieks, my God, my God, why? In his humanity, his deity is not allowed to sustain him. 
And the heat of God's wrath beats upon the Saviour that it might not beat upon us. He's in the place where we deserve to be. He is our substitute and surety. He's drinking the cup of the wrath of Almighty God, God's hatred of evil. God cannot accomplish redemption without showing how evil evil is. And so Christ feels the heat, like this plague says, the heat, the terrible heat. And then there's darkness for three hours on the cross, and that's the next plague. Plague of great darkness. And what happened then? All the demons of hell attacked him. All the evil spirits came out, and they said, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross if you're the Christ. Come down. Millions of the darks of the evil one are aimed at the sinless saviour. Then the great battle of the ages is fought, not the battle of the Somme, not the battle of Waterloo. The greatest battle of the ages was fought at Calvary when all the demons of hell tempted Christ to come down from the cross and he could have and it would have meant that we'd have had to go to the cross. But finally there's the cry, it is done, it is finished and there's a great earthquake because he has drunk the cup of the wine of God and all nature is now testifying. As his heart shakes, the rocks are rent. As he sighs and groans, the veil is torn. All nature sympathises with its author. So what is it saying? It is God pleading. It is the God that knows that when the genial sun cannot ripen some seeds, a forest fire may do the trick. That while religion is never meant to be a fire escape, sometimes we are so hardened in our follies that only tremendous pressure and heat and the fear of fire can bring us to the feet of the Master. So he set forth something awful, but it might not happen. He set forth something dreadful and horrible, that it may never take place for you and me. But it's clear what it's saying. Either I accept the atonement of Christ or one day I must make atonement for my own sins and I will become as a leper. It will be a bloody experience. I will experience the heat of the wrath of God. I'll experience the darkness of being separated from hope and from love and from everything worthwhile. The demons of hell will take possession of me and I will drink the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. God in his mercy has put in this chapter that it might never happen to those that believe. Let's look at the end of the book, please. How should you finish a book like the Bible? What a, what a task that would be. Well, in verse 6, the last chapter says, These words are trustworthy and true. You know, there's not a lot you can rely on. You can't rely on your own heart. The person who trusts his own heart's a fool. The Bible says that. The person who trusts his own heart's a fool. You can rely on God. You rely on his words. Everybody else, unless they're held up by the, the Almighty, very weak, very pliable. But God is trustworthy and true. And the scriptures are true. And we are to live with the assurance of verse 7, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
And then the warning in verse 10. Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. The time is near when the decree will go forth, let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. In other words, there's a time coming when people can't change sides anymore. And behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he's done. We're not saved by our deeds, but our deeds testify as to whether we're saved. They're just the evidence, they're the fruit. Verse 14, Blessed are they who wash their robes. The King James Version has blessed are they who do his commandments. The Greek word for commandments is entelase. The Greek word for robes is stolase. And early on a mistake was made and where it had stolase, someone put in entelase. And the versions that were being copied at the time of the King James Version, 90% of the King James Version comes from Tyndale, a wonderful man, great man. But they made a mistake at that point that it should be stolase, not entelase. And the meaning is, blessed are they that wash their robes. And you remember that links with the first chapter of the book, where it talks about Christ's love for those whose robes need washing. If you read the first chapter, it gives us a picture of a Christ who, even though we're filthy, he loves us still and yearns to wash us clean. So it's finished on the same note. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They may have right to the tree of life, may enter the city by the gates. Our right is only that we're in him. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, dear friends, the law cannot condemn you. The accuser of the brethren has no success when he points the finger at you. The accuser of the brethren is cast down by the blood of Christ. Your own conscience may attempt to condemn you, but the Bible says if our conscience accuses us, God is greater than our conscience. And we'll accept his verdict. Most of us are too easy on ourselves, but there are times when we're too hard on ourselves. It would be good if we could see the truth as it is in Jesus, that in and of ourselves we're not worth much, but in Christ we are of inestimable value. That in and of ourselves we have no strength, but while we're looking to Christ and depending on him, we have all strength for whatever he gives us to do. And then, verse 17, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. You're not really a Christian unless you're echoing the call of the Spirit that called you. In the 20th century, you can't usually go up to people and say, are you saved? Unless you have won the hearts of people, you'll never get their heads. And so, until people are convinced that we are for them and not against them, and for them for their sakes, not our sakes, we're not only for them to drag them into some church building, we're for them. We want what's best for them. Then they'll listen to us. So when it says, and he that heareth says, come, it's not talking about an unwise evangelism. It's rather talking about the wisdom of the serpent and the harmlessness of the dove. It's, it has to be the awareness that until people can trust us, they're not going to listen. And that may take years. It may take years. And furthermore, it may take pain. We can't even win some of our own family to our way of thinking because we're all made free and different. But God's the real schoolmaster and he teaches us by the events of life. And sometimes we will not listen to his message until something has happened in our lives that opens our hearts and minds. Never give up on your loved ones. I mean, look, very, very careless to you now, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. But God hasn't given them up. Christ died for them. But often they will not listen until something happens in life that exposes their need. Then they will listen. Meanwhile, we are to love on. So let him that heareth say, come. We say, come, by the way, we love people. And then when they're ready to listen, we can tell them. And let him that's thirsty come. And let him who desires take the water of life 
without price. What a beautiful invitation at the end of Holy Writ. All the best things to be had for free. You know, in this life there's nothing for nothing and very little for sixpence. But in Christ, in the gospel, the best things are free. Shouldn't surprise us, our advent on this planet, we didn't procure it. We're born in this planet and usually there are two people in love with us even though we're ugly. We survive because of the kindness of other people. You know, the most important people in Russia are grandmothers. Most women in Russia are grandmothers at the age of 41. But they're the most important people in Russia because they, they love, they love. They've been hurt enough by life to know the only thing that really counts is love. So we've come to the end of the book of Revelation, but I want to remind you of one verse that we read and looked at quickly. In Revelation 16, it said, Blessed is he that keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. That is based on the old custom of a chief watchman going around the city of Jerusalem through the night to see if the watchmen at various centres were awake so that if any enemy came against the city, the alarm could be sounded and the people would be able to make their defence and save the city. If the chief watchman found anyone asleep, he didn't hit him over the head, he didn't shout in his ear, he just set his clothes alight. And when that watchman went into the city in the early morning... All the people said, look at him. Shame on you. You're asleep on watch. Now the Lord is saying to us, we're all watchmen for Zion. We're all watchmen. We need to remain awake. The world will lull us if it can. It'll lull us by good things or bad things. Anything to divert us from Christ, it will do. Christ is saying in love and mercy, don't let anyone take away the robe, the robe of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Don't let anyone steal from you the riches of the gospel. Remain awake to what you have in Christ. And if all hell breaks loose, and if the heavens seem to collapse, and the earth becomes a chaos, if you have the robe, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The mountains may depart and the hills be removed. Yet... Yet, God is trying to say to us, the most important thing in life is to accept the loving gift of God, the righteousness of Christ, which is for all who believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this blessed book. May it lead us and keep us by the side of the Saviour who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, here's a part of your flock. Bless each one here today. May thy spirit be their teacher and guide. May thy angels attend them. Help us all to remember the book of Revelation has warned us that there's darkness as well as light. There are enemies as well as friends, but that you're on the throne, that you're really in control, that nothing can touch us except by thy permission, and that ultimately all will be light and all will be glorious and all will be love. Help us to live in Christ. Help us to live in love. Help us to share him by the way we live and speak and think. And someday soon, may the battle be over and won and we meet together on the other shore. Granted, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.